0: Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron.
1: And I'm Nicole.
0: And today we're talking gut health and stool testing with Ryan Whitcomb. Mm
2: Do I say something Ryan. here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's welcome,
2: up? Welcome back. Thank you very much. you think by now that this is my second time doing this. I would know when to say hello at the intro and I still <laughs> get stuck on this. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's okay. You'll it's get okay. it at some point. Maybe on the fifth time I'm on the show.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah that's fine. That's fine. I mean, <laughs> we'll see how this goes and then we'll see if we even want to invite you back. Your love for me is very conditional. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, today we want to talk about gut health and specifically stool testing, poop, poop. We want to yeah, talk about. We want poop. to talk about poop. This is my favorite topic as a dietitian. This is awesome. So, us in the nutrition world, we know that poop is very important. Mm-hmm. So, yes. talk to us a little bit about.
2: I guess, the importance of poop. Well, poop can tell you a lot about yourself. And I know as a dietitian, it's something that we tend to do a lot of talking about. And I remember when I was in my internship, a lot of us would talk about poop because that... So much comes out in poop. And there are a lot of markers you can pick up in poop. These markers can tell us whether we're healthy or not. And so it's not unusual to hear dietitians talking about poop at the lunch table, where for most people that would make them sick. But for dietitians, we we get off on that kind of thing. So because poop is so important, it tells us a lot about the health of the individual. It lets us know um, or I should say it informs us of what our next steps are when working with clients and poop's important because as I mentioned, there are a number of markers that we look at to see if the person's well, but in the poop, we can find the composition of the person's microbiome. And I know that that's what we're going to be talking about today. So that's what I'm going to lead in with.
0: So let me ask you this. I don't know if this is kind of a curveball, but because I didn't put it on the uh, the outline for you. Oh, but. here we go. I did here a lot go. of <laughs> for this, Theron. Well, let me let, outside <laughs> don't of, do this to me <laughs> outside, outside of the uh, composition of what's in the poop, which, which what's in your stool, which is what we'll get into. Frequency is important, right? Mm-hmm. Frequency of bowels and how your bowel comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. to us
2: a little on that? Yeah, that goes to the Bristol stool chart. So for those of you who aren't aware, the Bristol stool chart is basically a chart of different types of poop and it has the the definitions the consistency the shape the form you know how solid or liquid it is and it'll tell us based on what that poop looks like and how frequent it is whether the person's experiencing normal uh, bowel movements if they're experiencing diarrhea if they're experiencing constipation because you'd be surprised many people have constipation and they don't think of it as constipation but based on the look of the poop it can tell us whether that person is constipated or not without really knowing anything else about them, what kind of foods they're eating, how much fiber they're getting, how much water they're drinking. Just by looking at their poop, you can determine if they're uh, constipated or not. What about frequency? Where where are we at in terms of uh, a range that's normal? So honestly, a normal range is one to three times a day. You should be pooping one to three times a day. If you're pooping less than that, that's a problem. Now, the thing is every person's body is different. So some people are going to be super pooper. So they're going to poop three times a day. And for them, that's just normal. Other people are going to poop once a day. And for them, that's just normal. But if you're finding that you're pooping more than that or less than that, that's usually a sign that there's something wrong. We obviously don't want to poop too often because that means the stool is going through the intestines too fast. If it's going through too fast, that means the body can't absorb the nutrients that it needs to be getting out of the food that you've eaten if it's too slow now what you're experiencing is the stool is going through the intestine and because it's sitting there a long time it's not doing anything the body the colon is going to pull water out of it so then it gets smaller it gets harder and it gets harder to push out the other problem with with a hard stool is that you're now exposing your intestines to potential toxins for a lot longer than it should be exposed to so Neither one is a good thing. So one to three times a day is about a pretty good uh, number of times to go. So let me ask you this, stool testing, what is it, how is it done? And
0: why is it something that could be potentially important for some of our listeners to
2: know about? Oh my god one question at a time i already forgot the second and third questions <laughs> so the first, what uh, is
1: stool ca- let's so just start stool, with what yes, is stool Jerome testing. with
2: me you gotta be one at you, a time one at a time yes. nice and slow nicole and derone you gotta go slow with me i get okay. so excited and i just <laughs> you know you gotta rein me in so st- what is stool testing so stool testing basically is a test to determine the composition of one stool right but within that composition, we can look at many different things. So one thing in particular that is very valuable is whether or not the person has a healthy or robust microbiome. Um, There are other things you can look at too, whether they're malabsorbing food, maldigesting food. If you see like big pieces of food in there, that would indicate maldigestion. Um, But basically, you can look at the composition of one's microbiome. And the microbiome is basically the entire uh, organ, you know, all of the organisms in one's intestines, right? Good bugs, bad bugs, and everything in between. I know some people are familiar with the term microflora, microbiome. They're used interchangeably. They're not really the same, but for all intents and purposes, we'll just say that the microbiome is a collection of all the bugs in the gut, good and bad. And there were more questions. Nicole, what were my other questions? Your other questions? See, you couldn't even, why even remember. Would, <laughs> why
1: <laughs> would someone, um, why would any of our listeners get a stool test done to begin with?
2: Yes. So people who are more likely to get a stool test, I'll start with that first, are people that have a lot of digestive problems, like chronic problems, uh, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, gas. Those are people who would be really good candidates for it. And because it's digestive in nature, a stool test seems like a... a, a a logical next step. But many other people can benefit from that, Nicole. It's not just people with digestive issues. If you have autoimmune disease, if you have eczema, if you have psoriasis, well, actually psoriasis is autoimmune. If you have IBS, if you have uh, a person who's had a, a long history of antibiotic usage, those are people who are also really great candidates for stool testing. But the microbiome informs so much, and there were so many connections to our systemic health that if our microbiome isn't robust, if it's not diverse, if it's not full of a lot of good bugs, our body can not be as optimized as it could be. And so really anyone can benefit from a stool test Everyone should be getting stool tested to see what the composition of their microbiome is. But the problem is most people don't do it. They're not aware of it. They don't know what it is. They think that they don't have a big problem. So therefore it's not something that they should really do. But honestly, it's probably one of the easiest tests you're ever gonna do in your life when it comes to a lab test. There's no needles involved. You're going to do it at some point throughout your day anyway. So at some point it's it's coming out. You may as well just catch it and send it off to the lab. But really, anyone can benefit from it. It's just a matter of who's going to be brave enough to to catch it. And Who it will poop in a cup so, for
1: science.
0: Yeah. <laughs> let's let's, uh, let's talk. Yeah, for research. Let's talk about that. So, Nicole, you've done a stool test. I did. And Absolutely. what is that? What is that like? You get a cup in the mail?
1: Oh, well, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It's not really the most fun thing to do, but you basically get this like paper tray, almost like a tray
2: that you would put long. fries in. It,
1: you would put fries in. Yeah, yes. that's exactly it. It's, a- you know, long. It kind of has the lip up. Um, basically, it has um, two plastic things that you you put it in the toilet and you basically poop into the cup.
0: Wait, so it's so pretty it- much it. Is it like a boat floating in the toilet water?
1: No, it doesn't float. It has it has like plastic <laughs> arms that you that clip onto the paper cup and it goes in between like the toilet and the lid. So you shut it down and the cup just sits and boof, not in the water. So you poop you're into the like, cup.
2: yeah, you're hovering above it.
1: Hovering. But yep. So then you t- you pull the lid up, you take the plastic thing out, you take the poop out and then you basically it gives you um, mine came with two. They look like little tech tubes, but a little bit bigger and a spoon. And you basically scoop out and have to fill the poop up in the water to the certain line. I'm sorry. It, listen, nobody likes to talk about it because it's embarrassing and it's a little gross. And I, so I'm in the bathroom scooping poop out of a cup to put into a test tube with this liquid that I'm assuming keeps it fresh and then you send it back into the lab and they test it and i have to tell you all of that aside because yes it's a little disgusting and i remember sitting there thinking this better tell me something worth learning about my body for to do this but it was by far the best thing i've ever done because i learned a lot about my body and things that have definitely helped my gut health. And I'm feeling incredible. And this is six months later, seven months later from mm-hmm. my initial stool test. So so I definitely just, recommend people do it.
0: Well, that it sounds appetizing. And <laughs> For the record, you're not really entirely grossed out by that, but you're grossed out by mushrooms that grow from uh, <laughs> no. f- fungus that grows from bugs that we. eat.
1: OK, so we did another quarter oh, steps.
2: On- yes. Uh. Uh, Cordyceps Me, in you.
1: I'm not the only one. Ew. I'm sorry.
2: I agree. I think cordyceps. Thank is you. Really freaking gross.
1: It's disgusting. And no, I <laughs> I'd did rather
2: not... play with my own poop. Me I'm too. with you. Nicole, you, I'm Ryan. with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, at least it's
2: mine. It's mine. It's
1: mine. That's what I said. And I have to admit, I want to learn. I wanted to know. I wanted to know exactly what was going on with my body. And I figured, you know, I mean, if anybody's going to play,
0: I just, I just I just want to say on that note, you know how many bugs you've unintentionally eating by eating cereal?
1: I don't eat cereal. Not now. What are you talking about?
0: Well, cereal, they're allowed to have like a certain number of yeah. bugs in the cereal, right? It's oh, all, oh. Foods. all foods oh, are allowed, food. Oh, just right? food in like, general in like, general. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you but don't think Derone, about
1: it. No. And things growing on stuff. I don't know. That's a whole nother topic. Let's stay on, all right, Let's back, stay on the poop topic
0: back to the poop the Um, less disgusting topic back to the the stool testing. All right. So we kind of talked about some symptoms, right? So most people would come in and they'd be like, I have digestive issues. And I think that this is a common misconception is that you should only get a stool test or you only have gut issues if you're feeling some type of indigestion or bloat or something that is digestive IBS, right? Things of that sort. And there's a lot more than just that. So I think it's important for our audience to know that a lot of things stem from the gut. Mm -hmm. And it stems from the uh, quality of the gut microbiome,
2: which is directly affected by the quality of the diet, how Mm -hmm. uh, much stress that person is exposed to how much Mm -hmm. sleep they're getting. There's a whole host of of things. And it's a vicious cycle. But I think to add on to what Daron just said, a lot of people don't realize that the gut is connected to the brain. There's a nerve called the vagus nerve. And that is, I, I like to think of it as a highway that connects the two organs and they communicate with each other. When the microbiome isn't healthy, that doesn't mean you're always going to have digestive complaints, you know, you might not have diarrhea, you might not have bad gas or, or constipation, you might have brain fog, you might have migraines, you might have something else that affects, oh, that was you.
1: Yeah, I didn't have any of the gut stuff that you're describing. I definitely had migraines. I actually even have like some shoulder pain, Mm. like in my upper back when I ate certain foods. And I definitely just I felt like, I just felt I did feel bloated. I will say that. But other than that, it wasn't anything that I would have been like, I think this is my gut.
2: Yeah. You would never think that a gut test or a stool test would be the thing that you needed to get the information that you needed to make changes in order to feel Mm -hmm. better. It it was probably thinking one of a million other things to, to research. I was
1: actually thinking hormones, to be honest with you. Mm. I thought I'm having migraines, so my hormones must be off. And you know, that was just my, my gut my gut instinct, no pun
2: intended. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my, don't forget my company is called gut reaction. (laughs) That's not, that is not a um incident or a
0: a coincidence. Coincidence. You know, what's interesting that I've heard recently is the term upset stomach, Mm -hmm. right? It's like tying an emotion that comes from your brain, Mm -hmm. right? That it's tying that to your gut, right? And in a lot of cases that, that in some cases that could be the case, right? That, there's, you know, you're upset. So that disrupts your
2: gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. And you're, and you don't forget, about like peristalsis in the gut as well. So if you're upset, the, the, the movement of your gut is also affected. It can be slowed down or sped up. That's why some people get like diarrhea. A nervous when stomach. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like if you have to go do a public speak or a public speech, and you're nervous to do that, some people might get the runs, Mm -hmm. because it's the brain and the gut are communicating and it's messing, you know, the the signals up. And so they have to run to the bathroom in order to expel that but otherwise, if they weren't nervous, they wouldn't have had that, that episode. So I remember when I, um, well, I'll disclose a little here. I remember when I first opened my practice, I think it was five years ago, I was so excited to do so, but I was also so nervous that I missed a form that I had to file with the state or or something. And I was so afraid I was going to be like, have the SWAT team bust in on me (laughs) for tax evasion or something. And so for the first week of my business, I just, I don't think I left the bathroom. I was so nervous. Yeah. Once I got over that and realized I didn't do anything wrong. All of my, you know, eyes were dotted and my T's were crossed and all the forms were filled out and I was legit and legal. I didn't have anything to worry about for <laughs> that first week. I was absolutely back and forth to the bathroom. It was awful. Eh, you know, it happens.
1: It happens. Especially so, with something you care that much about, you know, it's my
2: baby.
0: Yeah, of course. It's like you wanted to thrive and you're like, oh, no, they're going to come and take all my money. <laughs> what money? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me ask you this. I, I want to kind of dive a little bit into what specifically we're looking for in a stool test and some of the things that that might tell us.
2: So I want to know. So there's good bugs and bad bugs, right? That's the simple way of, of explaining it. But I want to know what good bugs do you have in your body that you that you actually have in your body and what good bugs in your body should you have that you don't have? I also want to know what bad bugs in your body do you have that you shouldn't have and what bad bugs in your body should you not have that you don't have? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I want to know what you have and what you don't have of both because that will inform us the, the, the general state of your microbiome. Of course, it doesn't have you know, uh, bacteria aren't the only thing that inform that. There are other measures as well, but the bacteria are the first thing that we want to look at to see if there's anything out of whack. Now, the thing is we have good bugs and these good bugs are supposed to be there. We know they're supposed to be there and they're normal and they're fine. But the problem is if a person has too much of a good bug, just like the old adage says, too much of a good thing, isn't good. So if you have too much of a certain type of bacillus, that's also not good because having too much of that specific uh, genus or species of a probiotic, depending on which one we're looking at, can crowd out other good bugs. So that's not good. Now, at the same time, if you have some bad bugs in your gut, well, that's gonna crowd out the good bugs from attaching onto the mucosa and exerting their health benefits onto you. So we need to know what we're working with. And oftentimes when I have patients come to me for food sensitivities, oftentimes I'll say, let's get your gut checked first, just to make sure there's nothing in there that we're missing. Because if you come to me for food sensitivities and we took out all these foods and and you still don't feel good, it could be because you have either a bacteria in there that you shouldn't have, a virus in there, there should be uh, some sort of worm, you know, parasite, something that should, that needs to be addressed first before we go on to the food sensitivity. So it is something that you do want to uh, work on removing before pretty much anything else is done. Yeah. So let me ask you this, the, with the bad bugs or the
0: bad bacteria that is kind of unwanted, is there a certain threshold? Are you looking at a certain range where it needs to be below a certain range? Like are those always, or most of the time
2: living there, but if you
0: have too much of it, that's when it becomes bad.
2: Well, yes and no. So for instance, like H. pylori should always be negative. You should never have H. pylori um, in there. However, with other things like uh, C. diff or campylobacter, it is normal to have under a certain threshold. So that would be okay. I don't want people to think that they're going to have zeros across the board. You might have a little bit of uh, stuff in the background, but as long as it doesn't go over the threshold, you should be fine. But with something like Um, H pylori that should just be negative it's either positive or negative
1: yeah and then in correlation to the rest of your numbers in terms of balance right so you can be out of balance and within some of the good bugs and bad bugs.
2: Correct. So even with good bugs, you still want to be over a certain threshold. So with bad bugs, you want to be under a certain threshold. With good bugs, you want to be over a certain threshold to make sure that you're not deficient. However, you also don't want to be too high Mm -hmm. because then if you're too high in that, then other good bugs are then crowded out and they don't have a seat at the table. So it's a fine balance. Again, I don't want people to think that in terms of bad bugs, a good stool test would show no bad bugs. There's always going to be a ratio. You just want more good bugs than bad bugs. Just like on earth, you're going to have good people and you're going to have bad people. For society to work, you have to have more good people than bad, but you're always going to have bad. That's just going to happen. You can't get rid of all bad people. I mean, what's bad? Who who determines that? So, you know, same thing with the gut there are bad bugs, but we don't necessarily have to get rid of them to levels that are undetectable, mm-hmm. you know? Well, essentially that's what you're looking at is like a tiny microscopic society living inside of you. <laughs> yes, but here's the thing, own With this tiny microscopic society that we're looking at within us, this society changes rather quickly. And so depending on a lot of external factors that we've already mentioned, like stress and sleep and diet and like, you know, uh, medication use, antibiotic use, uh, what do you call it? Um, When women take it to prevent pregnancy, birth control, birth control. There we go. So those kind of things can play a role in the Mm -hmm. health of the microbiome. When you do a stool test, you're just looking at a snapshot in time. Think of it as the scene in a movie. Mm -hmm. You're just getting a scene in that movie. You're not seeing the entire movie. In order to see the entire movie, you'd have to do a stool sample every single day. That's just not reasonable. But if you do a stool sample, you know, a few times a year, that gives us a good idea, a good indicator of the health of your microbiome, but it changes very fast, especially to diet, which you are eating today has a direct effect on your microbiome within the next 24 hours. So if you're someone that eats a really good diet Monday through Friday, lots of kale and and greens and vegetables and all this good stuff, And then on the weekends, you do a lot of binge drinking, you eat a lot of greasy fattening food, a lot of salty food, sugary foods, that's gonna change the microbiome overnight. And so if you were to do a stool test on a Tuesday versus a Saturday or a Sunday, they could be very, very different.
1: I'm so glad you bring that up because one of the things that I had, when I originally had my stool test, I was going through a lot of stress. And so that was, I think one of the bigger factors as to why Things were a little out of balance. When I started taking care of my gut, de-stressing and paying a little bit more attention to, um, I started taking digestive enzymes, just a whole slew of of great changes. I did a second test and everything came back, quote unquote, balanced, as she puts it, or normal. But it's interesting because I have had stool tests done. I think that was maybe my third or fourth one. I did a couple during the time that I had done my contest prep for bikini shows because I had been told... That when other competitors or other girls that I had been competing with had been eating the same things every day, which we tend to do and were competing, they had really bad time with their guts after the fact because there wasn't a lot of variety in their food or they were limiting certain types of food, et cetera. So I really wanted to make sure I was being very careful when I did it. And I had never had any issues before. Every stool test I had done prior came back normal, normal, normal. And I found it really interesting that the most stressful time in my life was the time when... The time that it was actually off, and I was having obviously migraines being my biggest complaint, I guess, or symptom.
2: But that just goes to show you how complex the body is. Yeah. And there are so many factors that sometimes are out of our control. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's easy to say we have stress, you know, stress from work, stress from relationships, you know, financial stress. It's not always that easy to rein some of these things in. Oftentimes these things could take months or years to really iron them out before they're no longer a worry for us. So I understand why a lot of people, sometimes their results come back and they're just, they're overloaded. Their bucket can't handle anymore. They're overflowing. Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I also think when you really start to, I, I, I should also say that when under that type of stress, I definitely had different patterns of eating because I was stressed. So I was making mm-hmm. different choices. Yep. So one kind of just snowballed into the other. So
2: Oh yeah, they feed off of each other. You know, absolutely. Yeah.
1: But I think for our listeners, the biggest thing in terms of just what we've talked about so far is that if you're experiencing any of symptoms, even things that you think might not be a gut issue, I think it's absolutely worth giving it a a try and, and doing the test. I mean, I never would have done it. if it wasn't re- recommended to me or it wasn't in the forefront of my mind to do it, I should say mm-hmm. at that well, time. Specifically, I
0: view it like like doing blood work. You do it. Yeah. In some, in but no cases, one wants to in poop some, in
1: a cup like it's it's much yeah, harder. I get it. But no,
0: and, but uh, but many people have fear of needles, needles. And, they and they don't want That's to do true. that either. But for the sake of your health. Right. When you look at your blood lipid profile, you look mm-hmm. at your your hemoglobin A1C. You look at your triglycerides, you look at your blood sugar, you look at, uh, you know, your your potassium, your nutrient status. Right. All of those things are super important. And your gut plays such a crucial role on your body that why not go and, you know, just get a checkup?
2: Absolutely. I think those are two really good points that the, bo- that, that, that the two of you just made because you're doing routine blood work anyway. And the, 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 the benefit of a stool test is that you get to do it from the privacy of your home. You don't have to do it at a lab in a, in a cold bathroom. That's the worst. Yeah. You know, on a toilet seat where a bunch of other strangers have sat. You can do it in the privacy of your own home on your own time, when nature calls Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's kind of gross. You don't really want to play with it, but you know, that's life. I pick up my dog's poop multiple times a day. So if I can pick (laughs) up his, I can definitely play with mine and pick it up and and scoop it in and do what I got to do. But I think as Darone said, it it really needs to be part of a just basic uh, checkup a few times, you know, one or two times a year, maybe three or four, depending on your medical status. But because the gut is such an important indicator of our overall health by not getting it tested, we're overlooking a massive part of who we are because it does tell us a lot about who we are. And think of it, the stool is downstream from everything. I mean, it's at the bottom end of our body. So everything collects downstream, shit rolls downhill. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that's the expression. And so all the things in our body that we can test, oh my gosh, like uh, levels of inflammation, we can test for zonulin, we can test for um, enzyme levels, in our stool, it's a no-brainer to just get it done. But well, you know, I don't want to sound preachy here. But talk to us they, a little bit about some of those other things that we're testing for. Okay, so it's not just bacteria that we're testing for. Stool uh, tests can also tell us about a number of other things as well. So the first one I mentioned, I think, was uh, intestinal inflammation, and the marker there is calprotectin. Now, you have you heard of CRP? C-reactive protein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's a marker of inflammation that we get from the blood. CRP, it does tell us whether we're inflamed or not. But the problem with CRP is that it doesn't tell us where we're inflamed. It's a nonspecific marker. So if your level is high, okay, we know you're inflamed. We just don't know where the inflammation is coming from. If it's you know low, then okay, we know you're not inflamed but with calprotectin, because it's very specific to the intestines, it's telling us directly whether neutrophils have infiltrated the mucosa of the intestines. If it's high, we know that your intestines are inflamed. And there are, there are no good reasons why your intestines should be inflamed. There's no health benefit to inflamed intestines. So we need to know that. And a stool test can absolutely tell us whether the intestines are inflamed or not. And then if they're inflamed, we need to figure out why. Is there something else on the stool test that can kind of give us a clue? It's kind of like blues clues, you know, where (laughs) one thing will inform you of the other. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing I mentioned was zinulin. So zinulin is a protein that can actually open up the cells of the intestine right so for those who are listening who aren't aware the intestine is one cell thick that's it it's amazing there is one layer of very very microscopic cells that keep the contents of the gut inside the gut and contents outside the gut outside it's incredible now the the cells on um in a perfect human specimen, like myself, will always be intact. (laughs) Um, They'll always be intact and that's how they should be because you don't want things outside the gut getting in and vice versa. But with zonulin, zonulin actually manages to wedge between the cells and open them up. So it becomes much more porous. We don't want that. We don't want there to be a uh, porous gut because then things, outside can get in and vice versa, and then bacteria in the gut can then leak out into the bloodstream into, into the lymphatic system. And that's where the immune system is lying. And when the immune system comes into contact with that, what do you think happens? A whole inflammatory cascade. Yeah. So that's where people have a lot of other inflammatory diseases. I mean, all disease is inflammation. It's just a matter of how it manifests, whether it's autoimmune or not, it's still inflammatory. Zonulin is a good measure to let us know whether or not that person has an issue with potential leaky gut. Oftentimes, if a person has really high levels of zonulin, it can usually be attributed to gluten. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone on the face of the earth should avoid gluten, but definitely if those levels are high, that would be an area where I'd say, okay, let's have you go to your doctor for further testing to double check that. hmm Another marker that we can look at in the stool is pancreatic enzymes. So elastase one is a marker, and so the pancreas secretes enzymes, and the enzymes to help us break food down, right? Proteins, fats, carbohydrates. But for some people with pancreatic insufficiency, for whatever reason, their pancreas doesn't release enough uh, levels of um, enzymes, and so therefore they can't digest very well, and so you might get some undigested food in the stool, which is. A sign that something's going wrong. So in the stool test, we can measure whether or not the pancreas is releasing enough enzymes for that person to properly digest their food. That's huge. Another thing, secretory immunoglobulin A, that's a marker that we use uh, to look at intestinal health as well. And secretory immunoglobulin A helps to keep the lining of the gut nice and clean. And it it can prevent bad bugs from attaching onto uh, the lining and it allows good bugs to attach. So good bugs can attach, bad bugs can't attach when SIGA is there. Um, and again, in the stool test, we can determine whether or not SIGA is present in enough levels that we should be worried or not worried. So it's not just about bugs. It's it's intestinal health as well.
0: You keep mentioning uh, good bugs and bad bugs. So how do we know the difference in terms of
2: what's good and what's bad? <laughs> well. Well. There is a little list here that I have. There are 10 things that a good bug will do that we know. That the body will respond to. Okay. Ooh. Now the good bugs that we know should be there. They they offer 10 benefits. Now, each bug may not necessarily offer all 10, right? So some bugs may offer just one benefit. Others may offer five benefits or seven. Some may offer all 10. I, you know, I don't know which ones specifically offer what but um, there are 10 things that we look for to to determine whether a um, bug is good or bad. So, and this is how they've determined it. So are you ready for the list? Let's go (laughs) at number one, a good bacteria (laughs) will adhere to the epithelium of the gut and act as a colonization barrier by preventing pathogens from adhering to the mucosa. So as I previously mentioned, bad bugs should not be able to attach on, that the, um, the good bugs will act as a barrier, so they won't let them attach. So That's the first thing. The second thing is that good bugs will modify the microbial flora through the synthesis of antimicrobial compounds like short chain fatty acids. We all know short chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory in nature and they confer their own host of benefits on the host. So that's another thing that good bugs do. Bad bugs, they don't produce short-chain fatty acids. (laughs) They might produce toxins that make you sick, but they're not producing short-chain fatty acids. The third thing that good bugs do, they stimulate the immune system in the form of increased secretion of secretory immunoglobulin A. We just discussed that. They also elevate the number of natural killer cells in the gut and also enhances the phagocytic activity of macrophages. So natural killer cells and macrophages are natural parts of the immune system that we need to keep us healthy. Macrophages produce something called phagocytosis, which is basically a really funny way of saying it eats bad material. So bacteria, viruses, worms, pathogens, it'll gobble it up into smaller bits and then excrete it out later on. So it becomes uh, neutralized, I should say. So that's the third thing. Then good bacteria also compete for nutrients that pathogenic organisms might otherwise take. So a really good example of this would be C. diff, okay? C. diff requires monosaccharides in order to grow, but probiotics can in fact eat those monosaccharides so that the C. diff can't get access to it and therefore can't thrive. So, so it's, it's protecting you. It's yeah. protecting you. It's eating it's eating the food for you to protect you so that the C. diff can't grow. Wow. Very interesting. The yes. fifth thing that good bacteria do is that they promote anti-inflammatory activity by interacting with toll-like receptors, and they downregulate the transcription of genes that encode for pro- pro-inflammatory cytokines, and at the same time, upregulating anti-inflammatory cytokines. So you know it's um, pretty robust. I mean, it, it does quite a bit there. So basically, what it's saying is. There are certain cytokines that are pro-inflammatory in nature that good bacteria will boost. It'll you know, increase their numbers. And then the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the bad ones that cause us inflammation and a whole host of really negative side effects, it will decrease their numbers as well. So that's a lot. I mean, look, these little guys that we can't even see with the naked eye do quite a bit.
1: I was going to say they definitely need to be nurtured. And obviously,
0: you know, th- these are things that we know through research, right? You can study a bacteria and you can study a strain and say, okay, well, this one produces short chain fatty acids. This is the good guy.
2: Actually, no, I'm making all this up right now. There's no <laughs> research to back it up. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get him out of here. <laughs> Where, where's the we cane? Need re- we need real science here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get that cane out of here. <laughs> I'm not like leaving the stage just yet. But you know, research is finding this, and, and this is how we know that a bug is supposed to be in the, the body and that it's native to the gastrointestinal system. If it doesn't do any of these things, then they have a pretty good idea that it's probably not good. Or if they find that it's producing toxins that make the person sick, or it's eating the nutrients that the good pro- probiotics need, then they know that it's, it's bad. The other thing is that good bacteria modify gastrointestinal transit time. So you know how before we spoke about stool and how if it goes by too quickly or too slow, that can be problematic? Well, good bacteria will balance it out so that it's not going too fast or too slow through the intestines. It's Goldilocks, it's going through at just the right pace so your body can absorb the nutrients in there without being exposed to toxins for too long and without becoming too hard. The seventh thing that good bugs do is that they decrease visceral hypersensitivity. Now, you know, some people with certain conditions like IBS, especially, that's a big one. Those people are really, really hypersensitive to any sort of distension on their abdomen, whether it's gas, sometimes it can just be touch. very, very sensitive. Well, good bugs in particular can actually prevent that from happening. It can actually make it so that they're not really that hypersensitive at all. And it can work on the cannabinoid and opioid receptors in our bodies. That's how it does that. It can attach to those receptors and take away the pain very interesting because that's so amazing i know because we're thinking of you know medications that can do these but probiotics can do this too it's really fascinating just how important these guys are but not only that but how many roles they have and they did quite a bit oh i thought someone was going to say something
1: i was (laughs) going to but you know what i'll let you finish all 10 and then i'll (laughs) and then i'll speak
0: Are you you advocating for marijuana
2: right now? I am not advocating (laughs) for anything specifically. I'm just reporting the facts. Just the facts, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. The other thing is the eighth thing that good bugs do is they strengthen the intestinal barrier by increasing mucin production in the gut by increasing mucin gene expression. Now, mucin provides that protective coating between the lumen and the intestinal cells. So again, it creates a slippery slope so that the bad bugs, again, can't attach on. Now, what's interesting for some people that can't picture that, what they could picture is if you're trying to climb a rock wall, right? So if you have all of your protective gear on and you're climbing that rock wall, you should be able to scale it up relatively easily if you're someone who's trained to do so. But if we took that same rock wall and we coded it with Crisco, that same trained person would have a much harder time getting up that wall because it's so slippery. And so the purpose of mucin and you know secretory immunoglobulin A is to prevent these bad bugs from attaching. So you have not one, but you have two different mechanisms that can do that. Very, very interesting stuff. And then the ninth thing, we're getting towards the end of the list here. I know this is exciting. You don't want this to end. But the the ninth thing is that they also produce beneficial compounds in the gut, like short chain fatty acids, which we described before. And remember, short chain fatty acids are the main source of fuel for the cells in the colon. So without short chain fatty acids, the cells in the colon have nothing to eat. If they have nothing to eat, what happens to them? Much like my jokes, they die. They die. (laughs) They die. (laughs) die. (laughs) And so when they die, the, the colon becomes more porous. And that's another problem. We don't want that to happen. So uh, short chain fatty acids are crucial to GI health. And the 10th and final thing that we know that beneficial bugs do is that they extract energy from food and that helps them to live and, and, you know, continue on to fight the good fight.
1: So feeding the good bugs. Now
2: now their food is predominantly fiber and, you know, prebiotic fiber, oligosaccharides, things of that sort. Correct. Yeah. So probiotics feed off prebiotics. Now a lot of, Clients of mine, before I start working with them, will say to me, oh yeah, I take a probiotic, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. First of all, just because you take a probiotic does not mean you're healthy. If you're not taking prebiotics to feed the probiotics, essentially you're accomplishing very little because the probiotics need the prebiotics in order to live. Without the prebiotics, they can't thrive and therefore they'll die. The other thing is, most people don't know this, but when you take a probiotic, you're not re-inoculating yourself permanently those bugs are just transient because they're not natively in your gastrointestinal tract. They're almost like guests. So they'll come for about 10 days and then they're out of there. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're passed on in the stool. So that's why taking a probiotic every day is important because every day you're having to replace the bugs from 10 days prior that are now being removed out. So once you've lost a, a set of bugs through either you know uh, radiation treatment or antibiotic usage or whatever it is, you're not getting them back. You can take a probiotic to replace them, but that replacement is just temporary. I want people to know that. So to answer Jerome's question in a very roundabout way, they do need prebiotic fibers in order to survive. So uh, galacto oleosaccharide, fructo oleosaccharide, partially hydrolyzed guar gum. Lactulose is also a prebiotic, but here in the US, we use lactulose to induce um, diarrhea in people who have a buildup of ammonia in their bodies. So I remember when I was doing my liver transplant rotation years ago, when their livers aren't working correctly, you can have a buildup of ammonia. So we use lactulose to get that out. I mean, you have diarrhea, but you get the ammonia out. So in America, lactulose is actually a prescription drug. You can't get that at the pharmacy, it's America and Austria, the only two countries where that is true. The rest of the world, you can go to any pharmacy and get lactulose and you can use it in small enough dosages that you can feed the good bugs in your gut. Is it necessary to
0: have it to feed them for the uh, good?
2: No, I mean, you don't have to have lactulose in order to feed the bugs in the gut. I mean, a good diet will do that. Uh, artichokes, uh, onions, bananas, whole wheat actually has prebiotic fibers in it as well. Onions, chicory, you know, all of those things produce um, Beneficial prebiotics that probiotics can use. Gotcha. Cool stuff. Nicole, where do you want to go from here?
1: I was just going to ask about pre and probiotics. When you are prescribing pre and probiotics to a patient or a client, how long do you normally have them use them for? Is it something they can be on for the foreseeable future or is it just until they get their body back to normal?
2: Ooh, so. The first, so I I think it's both because you, you want to do short-term just to get them back to where they should be in terms of health, the optimal Mm -hmm. health. And then once they get to that point, then you want to retest them to see what the microbiome looks like now. And from there, you might have to then recommend different strains of probiotics in order to keep them where they are. So to start, you might need to use a different set of bugs to Mm -hmm. get them to where they need to be. And then once they get there, then you switch that over To to, to maintain. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But remember, it's it's like whack-a-mole. Because the gut has so many bugs, it's not just one strain of probiotic that's going to do it. I mean, you need mm-hmm. to take multiple different types in order to keep the microbiome robust,
1: yeah. well, this is why I ask because I feel like people just go to like CVS, buy a product, buy a probiotic, take it. And hope for the best Mm
2: -mm, without mm -mm, any testing. Mm -mm. Oh, we gotta talk (laughs) about that. You made me talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: I'm bringing it up, right? And
2: this gets me so angry because people think because it's a probiotic that they're okay. And as I mentioned before, that's not true because probiotics are not interchangeable. So when we think of probiotics, when you look at a label, I always say to my clients, "Okay, you're taking a probiotic pat on the back," but now. What are you taking? Show me the label. What does it say on the back? And they'll say, oh, it says Lactobacillus plantarum. Okay, well, what's the strain? Well, what do you mean? You told me the genus and the species, but what's the strain? And the strain is the thing that tells us what it's responsible for doing. So think of it this way. The three of us are people, okay? That's our genus. Our species would be our family with the last name, right? So I'm Whitcomb, the people in my family who have the last name Whitcomb, that would be the species. But then the strain would be Ryan, I'm Ryan, I'm different from my cousin, Mary, or my cousin, Craig, or my cousin, Chris, we behave differently, we act differently, we do different things, we have different interests. And when it comes to probiotics, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just because something's in the same genus and species does not mean it's going to act the same way. Lactobacillus plantarum 299V is very different from Lactobacillus plantarum MF 1298, they're two totally different probiotics mm-hmm. and they're gonna act very, very differently. One of them can make IBS much better. It can take away a lot of the symptoms of IBS. The other one can make IBS worse. So probiotics are not interchangeable by any stretch of the imagination. You need to know exactly what you're taking. If it just says a genius and a species, Put it back, don't buy it because you don't know what you're getting. It's the strain that tells you what that specific probiotic is responsible for doing in terms of health benefits.
0: Are there genetic variances between
2: you and me and Nicole in terms of what probiotics we would need? Absolutely, absolutely. Darone, that is such a great question because we get our individual microbiomes, guess who we get it from? Mom, because where do we come out of? We come Mom. out of the vaginal the, the birth canal right through the mm-hmm. vaginal canal. Well, see let's put C-section aside for a moment. But when we come through the birth canal, we're screaming, we're scared, we don't know what's going on and because our mouths are open, we're getting all of that flora from the mother and it's going into our mouths and then down into our guts. Our mother is the one who colonizes us at birth. Mm -hmm. So when she's giving birth to us, that's when we get colonized. And then, of course, there were some other bugs in the environment in the hospital that we come into contact with. Now, for for children who are born via C-section, they don't get any of that. So all of the the, uh, bugs that the mother would have passed on, those children miss out on. And it's unfortunate because those are, are bugs that could be so beneficial to them. Now, here's the thing. There's this thing called vaginal swabbing that doctors can do. And they basically take a swabs of the woman's vagina and and birth canal, and they then put it in the baby and try to, you know, in in the hopes that they can colonize the child. I've had a number of people in my life personally who have had to get C-sections for one reason or another. And again, there's no judgment here. I'm not here to shame anyone who had to have a C-section. It's one of those things where, you know, different circumstances for different people, but I, said to them, see if your doctor will do a, a, a vaginal swab. Do you know every doctor that my, well, person spoke to, refused, just wouldn't do it. And for me, there's no downside to it. It couldn't harm the child because the child would have had that happen to them anyway. But many doctors won't do that. So unfortunately for children who are born via C-section, their microbiomes look very different, very much unlike the mother because they'd never had the opportunity to go through the birth canal. So instead their microbiome consists of the hospital environment, much more so than children who were born vaginally. And so then that child will grow up And then at some point, you know, that woman, she'll grow up into a woman, she'll give birth. But because her microbiome was very different at birth from her mother's, depending on how she gives birth to her daughter or son, that child's microbiome will be very different as well. So it's one of those things where we're all very different microbiome-wise because of that very reason. The other thing is, Daron, to add on to what you said, there's this thing called the disappearing hypothesis, what is it called? Disappearing microbiome hypothesis. And basically what it means is as we get more sterile over the years and our level of hygiene increases, we're losing a lot more bugs. People a hundred years ago had a lot more diversity in their microbiome than people today. And this, because we're using a lot more hand sanitizer, we're using a lot more antibacterial soap. We're much more clean. We're much more conscious of that. We shower more often. People don't realize this, but there is a skin microbiome that's totally different from the gut microbiome. There's a hair microbiome, very different from the skin and the gut. There's a vaginal microbiome. I mean, all of these things have their own microbiome and the cleaner we get, the more often we shower, the more often we take hot baths. That all has an effect on our microbiome. And so that affects then our children as well. So over the years, we tend to lose diversity in the microbiome because of all this cleanliness. So I'm going to reference the. I'm going to go episode. get dirty. I'm going to
0: reference yes. the last episode, <laughs> the last episode that we did together. So basically, what Ryan is saying is that he not only doesn't wear deodorant, but he doesn't, show- <laughs> but he doesn't shower.
2: <laughs> he also doesn't shower. No, let me tell you something. I will. You know what? I'm going to defend myself here. When I go in the shower, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I'm the gloves are off. I'm glad because that. <laughs> do you know? I've read studies on this, but people who who are constantly washing their armpits, and this is something that I want to do more research on.
1: Listen, we already talked about this. So <laughs> <laughs> Back to I'm the using artist.
2: deodorant. <laughs> Wait a minute, Nicole! You play with your poop, so you have no basis to <laughs> criticize. She acts like it's Play-Doh. I bet she has little tubes of it in her her uh, bedroom.
1: <laughs> I definitely do not. They
2: say it's non-toxic, but I disagree. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but um, <Touché. laughs>
2: but so, it's one of those things where there's so much more research that needs to be done on like the skin microbiome in order to have a much more intelligent conversation. Mm-hmm. I know you you plebeians don't understand this as much well, as I do. Well, <laughs> well there's there's
0: i think there's much more research that needs to be done on just bacteria and probiotics in general
2: oh it, microbiome yeah. included i mean yeah, for the gut yeah. i mean everything it's so much more in fact if you archive this this podcast and we listen to it again in five years ten years from now i'm sure the information will be totally different yeah it'll true. be a totally different podcast
0: it'll be ancient
2: history <laughs> oh and i'm sure the, someone in 10 years from now listening will go God, that Ryan guy was a real Luddite. I mean, a real idiot. He didn't know what he was talking about, but this is the information we know today. Yeah. Let me ask you this. This is a common question that I
0: get from clients. And when I used to work for the supplement manufacturer in the consumer uh, consumer affairs department, the common thing that I would get... So there's two things when you buy a probiotic supplement off the shelf from wherever you're getting it, GNC, Vitamin Shop, CVS, oh, whatever. Don't even say Amazon. that. Amazon. Whatever it is. Right. So there's two things. There's there's one. There's always that statement on it that says, uh, you know, 30 billion guaranteed at time of manufacturing. Right. So mm-hmm. obviously you kind of play with those words and you're like, oh, well, they some of them probably die off. Right. Mm-hmm. But the big question that I get often from people is, should I buy a probiotic
2: that is refrigerated or not? Mm-hmm. Oh God, that is a good question. Oh, a number of good ones today. That's a tough one to answer because I think it really depends on the person's medical status. And there might be some probiotics that are better being refrigerated than, than they are at being shelf stable. Personally, I would advise buying against the ones that are refrigerated only because when it's in the refrigerator, you tend to not see it as often, so you tend to forget about it, and therefore you tend not to take it as much. Plus, what happens if your power goes out? Or what happens if you have to travel and you're going on a plane? I mean, if, in the age of COVID, who's traveling these days? But I'm sure at some point this virus will go away and we'll start traveling the world again. But what if you have to take a plane to Europe? Do, is that probiotic well, think, gonna last think eight hours of,
0: outside? or I think some of the thought process that people have going into this is, if it's not refrigerated, then I'm just buying dead bacteria.
2: Not necessarily. And the thing is, I'm not dissing refrigerated probiotics. Some of them can be very good. It's just my personal preference. If I can get around that, I will. Yep. Just for those, you know, logistical reasons. But they do have ones that are freeze dried that are just fine. Then they have ones that are spore based. So spore based probiotics don't have to be refrigerated at all because they're they're found in. Um, soil and soil doesn't have to be refrigerated. And because they're spores, you know, they're only going to be activated once they go inside the body. So a spore based probiotic wouldn't really need to be refrigerated. What about getting through
0: digestion, like stomach acid and all that?
2: Yeah. So a good probiotic really needs to be able to survive the pH of the stomach. If it can't survive it, then it's not a very useful probiotic because it's dead on arrival. It'll never make it into the intestines. So a really good probiotic will be able to survive. And oftentimes when they say, you know, has 30 million, 30 billion colony forming units, you know, at time of manufacture, my understanding, and this might vary between different manufacturers, but ideally the manufacturer should have that many number of CFUs by the expiration date. So, in reality, they should be adding in a lot more to account for any potential die off. But that might not be across the board.
0: Yeah. They could just be covering their asses in terms of, you know, just saying at time of manufacturing.
2: Of course. Yeah. Because you don't want to over promise and under deliver. Yeah because there's no supplement companies that ever do that. <laughs> no. No. They've they've never had any sort of investigations into supplements that were fake. <laughs> That's no. They're, they're all phenomenal just honest people. Yeah. But that is exactly why. And the viewers can't see this, but when Darone was listing off the places where people buy their supplements, like Amazon and a few other stores that I'm not going to name, I was kind of sitting here rolling my eyes because a lot of really good reputable brands will not be sold through those chains. They will not be sold through those um, avenues. A really good probiotic or a really good supplement will usually be sold either directly by the manufacturer or it'll be something that you have to go through a healthcare practitioner to get. And it'll be shipped out out either by a fulfillment company who's made sure that that shipment was properly stored, or it'll be uh, sent out directly by the manufacturer who, again, had control of the storage of that product. When you're buying from somebody on Amazon, you have absolutely no idea where that product has been. It could be in an unrefrigerated warehouse in a hundred degree heat in Phoenix for six months. You don't know. That's why a lot of really good companies won't allow their brands to be sold on Amazon. Now that doesn't mean that people can't get around that. It doesn't mean that people still can't find a way to sneak their product out. Because I have agreements with a lot of companies. So in theory, what I could do, and I've never done this, but what some sneaky people do do is they'll, they'll buy the product Uh, wholesale at a discount, right? A ton of units. And then they'll turn around and then sell it on Amazon for a markup. And then they're, they're pocketing the difference. But that is illegal. According to our contracts, you're not allowed to do that. And when they catch you, they'll shut you down. But again, once I take possession of that, you have no knowledge as the consumer as to whether or not i've taken care of that product if that product needs to be refrigerated and i haven't done so you won't know that because the day that i go to ship it out maybe the night before i threw it in the refrigerator and you know made it cold through some uh you know dry ice in there and tricked you you, know, you don't know there's a lot of people out there who do unsavory things and then i've also heard of people who ordered supplements and it just didn't look right so they they, they didn't take it but i i've also heard of investigations that were done where they did find product that was properly labeled by the company, but what happened was, a person emptied out that package and then put in a bunch of fake stuff, not harmful per se, just full of cellulose, which is just a little plant fiber. It's not gonna harm you, but it it isn't the actual supplement that you think you're getting, but you as a consumer wouldn't know that. So it's just one of those things where I really caution people to be careful with where they get their supplements from, because you just don't know. Look, I love Amazon for a lot of things, supplements and food, uh, no. (laughs)
0: Well, that's where you see companies now that are considered professional lines like Thorne or Thorn. Designs for yep. Health, yep. right? Those companies, you f- you see, you used to never be able to get their products unless you get it through uh, a practitioner. And now you see their products all over Amazon.
2: And I'll be honest, I'm one of those people. I will work with Designs for Health. I will work with Vital Nutrients, Orthomolecular. Those are brands that I work with and I have access to. And I'm always happy to give people access if they need that. And there are some, some pharmacies that I know of that will order this product, but because they have a contract with those companies and they're guaranteed to be able to store that product correctly, they can then sell to the average consumer. So I know there's a pharmacy in, um, I think it's Bedlam, Bed- Bedminster, New Jersey, that sells a lot of um, professional grade Supplements like designs for health and thorn and a bunch of others, you know, they'll do that and they're allowed to But otherwise you have to get it through a practitioner because they don't want anyone to just be able to do that But amazon has created a really big problem for them and the average person just doesn't know that Yeah, they don't know that um, the product that they're getting could be Not necessarily in the best shape. I'm not saying that it's always tampered with i'm not making that an accusation But the problem is we just don't know And if you're going to spend all that money on a product that's pretty expensive, I want to be guaranteed that I'm getting the best quality that I can get. So great stuff. That's me. Anything else you want to add? Well, do we have three more hours? Because I could go <laughs> I'm really not even joking.
1: We'll <laughs> save it for other episodes so we can let people absorb everything that we talked about today. Yeah. Because well, it's such great stuff.
2: Yeah, but Nicole, the problem is Daron has already threatened me with, you know, let's see how this one goes. So there might Listen. not be a third one.
1: <laughs> let me tell you something, Ryan. Daron is only half of this
2: team. That's true. I and hope I'm you- the good half. I hope you have 51% stake in this <laughs> podcast.
0: I'm um I'm two thirds of this team. (laughs) Excellent, excellent topic. Excellent information from you, Ryan, as always, which is why we invited you back on the show. We love the insight that you have. You're definitely an expert in the field and what you do. You definitely do your due diligence. And I appreciate all of your insight for our audience. Uh, If anybody has any questions for Ryan, you can go to his website. GutRxN.com. rxn.com you can schedule a free call on his website and uh, if you're having any gut issues or you you know having some or not activities or not <laughs> right as um, we discussed <laughs> ryan is definitely somebody that is an expert in the field really cares about his clients and and really loves and, and is really passionate about what he does so ryan i appreciate you coming on
2: Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure as usual. I really appreciate it. And hopefully I was able to impart some knowledge to your listeners. And even if they learned one new thing to me, it was totally worth it. Excellent. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe,
0: give us five stars, write a review, share it with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.